name's Brad, and I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And it's our privilege to welcome you here this Advent as we move into the second Sunday of Advent. And when uh, our kids were little, one of the things that I loved to do was go to the beach and build sandcastles. How many of you are sandcastle builders? Some of you? All right, only a few of you are sandcastle builders. Um, one of the things that I actually still a little bit like to go to the beach and build sandcastles, not just, not just when the kids were little, uh, but I am a risky sandcastle builder. And what I mean by that is I like to build close to the water because I want to use the water in my castle. I want to dig a moat and have the water kind of come up and fill it in and kind of make the castle really grand and spectacular. Because you know the thing that I find with sand uh, further from the water, it's a little bit like the sand in this jar here. Like it's just, um, if you don't have any water in the sand, there's like nothing to it, right? It doesn't stick together in any way. You can't really build a sandcastle out of this kind of dry, lifeless kind of sand. You need a little bit of water in your sand. And for some people, when they build their sandcastle on the beach, they want to build it up as far away from the water as you can. Those big bad waves, and they put up nice big walls thinking that'll keep the water out. And um, you can't actually build a sandcastle that way. It's just too dry and lifeless. There's no, you need a little bit of water for your sandcastle. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, if you get too much water coming into, over, and around your sandcastle, it's going to collapse. It can't bear that much water, right? The tide's going to come up and come in and going to overrun it, and then you got no sandcastle left whatsoever. It won't hold. So today, we're going to talk together about doubt and faith and the interaction between doubt and faith. And when we talk about that, um, the metaphor of sandcastle building for me is helpful because uh, it, with sandcastle building, you need a little bit of water. And with faith, if you have a dry, lifeless faith that has no questions, no doubt, complete rigidity, certitude is the highest value to you, that can be troubling when a little bit of water starts to seep into it. And doubt is a little bit like that water. Some people try and build really tall walls to keep it out. But into every life, a little doubt must fall. And I don't know if you've had that experience yet. Uh, too much doubt, though, and you feel like you're being sucked out to sea. You're drowning and feeling a little bit lost and like you're going under. But a little bit, and the dynamic interplay between doubt and faith is what we want to discuss together this morning. Um, there's a great book by a pastor in California named John Ortberg, and he wrote a book called Faith and Doubt. Not faith or doubt, faith, but faith and doubt. And he argues this. He suggests many times we think of doubt and faith as opposites. And there's lots of books and Pinterest posts that argue for one over against the other. But while in some respects they might be enemies, in other ways they're actually surprisingly alike. They both are concerned with ultimate issues. They both pop up unasked for at unexpected moments, and both are actually necessary. This month, we're talking about hope and hope for the holidays. And we talked last week about the fact that um, by virtue of the fact that we are talking about hope, hope means that we don't have something. We're missing something. We're waiting for something. And if it's something that we're still waiting for, uh, we talked last week about waiting patiently and waiting uh, and wrestling through some of that. But that means that there is always the chance that as we wait for that which we do not yet possess, that doubt can come into our lives. And what do we do with that? We see that in the Christmas story. We see it in the people who were promised by the prophets in the Old Testament, a deliverer. And yet hundreds and hundreds of years pass and they're still waiting for God to move in their situation. And what I think can happen is when we come into a season of Advent 
and you start reading the devotionals and the lectionary texts for Advent, there's themes of light and darkness. And so a lot of the, the ways that we read those metaphors can become, and not unjustly so, where light is always good and darkness is always bad. So Isaiah chapter 9 is a good example of this, using the metaphor the prophet says, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light where Messiah, Savior, Jesus is going to break in. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Or John 1, 5 picks up, John chapter 1 is full of this theme of light and darkness. So John 1, 5 says the light... Uh, God's light, Jesus, shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. So sometimes when we read this, we come to associate the image of light with goodness and dark and darkness with evil, bad, and wrong. And certainly that's not unjustified. In the scripture, darkness can often signal chaos, like in Genesis 1 where it says the spirit of God was brooding over the face of the water and it was dark and then light breaks in. Or in the wisdom uh, tradition, in the wisdom literature, in Psalms and in Proverbs, often darkness is uh, equated with a lack of understanding or knowledge. If someone comes from darkness to light, they didn't understand something and then they do come to understand something. But when we think about the theme of hope, hope implies to a certain extent that we're still stumbling our way through the darkness. We haven't got there yet. We haven't kind of gotten to the place where we have what we are longing and looking for. And so the question to ask ourselves is, is darkness always bad? Metaphorically, spiritually, experientially. And the challenge is that if that becomes our way of thinking about it, when you find yourself in a place that feels dark or where doubt is your constant companion, you begin to think, Maybe I'm bad, evil, and wrong, too. And you feel lost and alone and afraid. And so it can become a little bit sometimes tone deaf at Advent, where everybody else is beating the drums of hope and light and life, and you feel a little bit gloomy, lonely, and scary. And what I began to reflect on as we prepared to walk through this Advent season is, I don't remember anybody in my spiritual journey ever sitting me down and helping me understand a theology of doubt and wrestling with what, what is doubt? How do you process it? What are the containers that you want to put it in, take it out, examine it? How do you wrestle with the darkness that can come into our lives and experiences? How do you ask hard questions, have hard conversations that feel very sometimes dark? And so this morning I want to talk a little bit about acquiring some new skills maybe for some of us about how to have healthy conversations about learning to walk in the dark. Because one of the things about the darkness is we actually learn things in those places of darkness that you cannot learn in the light. We learn things in those wrestling moments, in those moments of despair, in those experiences that many of you have had that you cannot learn if you do not walk through the darkness. There's profound gifts that the darkness and doubt can bring to us if we're willing to receive them. So let's talk about doubt. So doubt actually shows up in the Christmas story. Angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Mary, you are going to have a child without having sexual intercourse with a man. And Mary asks a very normal question, how could that be? She doubts. She says, I don't know about that. He says, Mary, you're highly favored. I don't know who you're talking about. That's not me. <laughs> or think about Joseph's experience. Mary shares the news with him. Hey, Joseph, <laughs> our relationship is going to look a little bit different than you thought it was. And Joseph's reaction is not that of the faith-filled, wondrously calm image we see on Joseph's face in the manger scenes with baby Jesus and Mary. His first reaction is, yeah, this is not happening to me. 
This is not how my life and my marriage and my parenting journey are supposed to play out. What do you do in those times? I want to suggest three things for us today that could be helpful in this discussion. And the first thing of learning to walk in the dark is to acknowledge the fact that doubt is not the enemy of faith. Just like my sandcastle needs a little bit of water, faith requires me to wrestle with elements of doubt. I love the way German theologian Paul Tillich says this. He says, doubt is not the opposite of faith, it's actually one element of faith. It's an ingredient of faith. Doubt and faith are part of the same process of questioning and wrestling and wondering and exploring. And it comes to us all the time in the pages of scripture. I think here about the story of Jacob. Jacob is a schemer. He's a dreamer. He has lots of things going on that he wants to try and wrestle with and try and make happen for himself. And he does okay in certain circumstances, and then in others it does not turn out well for him at all. And there's this crucial moment in his life where he stays up all night and he wrestles with God. Physically, he wrestles with God. And if Jacob can do it, you and I can do it. One of the takeaways from that story is, it's okay to wrestle with God. It's not going to kill you. (laughs) You might walk away with a limp like Jacob did. It might hurt you. It might leave some scars, but it is okay to wrestle with God. Or I think in the story uh, of Jesus in the New Testament, there's a man who comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my kid is sick. I've tried everything. I, I'm, I'm begging you. I need your help. Would you be able to heal my child? And Jesus often talks to people about their faith in non-binary terms. Not, do you fully have it? Is it 100% good to go? Then I shall heal thee. Or if it's absent, he just questions them. He wants to know. He's probing into a conversation. And so he has a conversation with this gentleman. And this gentleman kind of in a, in a what seems like an outburst, just says, I, I do believe, but would you help my unbelief? I believe, but mixed in with that belief, I still got a whole bunch of unbelief stuck in there. It's part of the ingredients of it. And so he's just saying, Jesus, would you in your mercy and grace, would you still work in my life and in our world, even though I'm not at the 100% marker on that whole belief thing? Or my absolute favorite verse about doubt in all of the Bible is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. So this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he calls a little meeting of all of his followers on uh, the mountain, which we call the Mount of uh, of ascension and so just before he goes up to heaven they have a little like worship service there on the mountain and Matthew 28 verse 17 says they meet with Jesus and they worshiped him but some doubted middle of a worship service with the incarnate son of God raised from the dead ascending into heaven and they're like I'm not convinced It's okay to doubt. You might feel like when you get in an environment like this, you look around and you think, well, everybody else is singing the songs like they're full in on this thing. You know? I don't know if I can get there. They sing these songs like they really believe them. I'm not sure. That's okay. Doubt is a normal part of our lives as human beings. And if you're having a season where you feel like you're fumbling around in the dark spiritually, emotionally, even physically, like this too is just part of life. And so if you're listening and you feel like you're walking in the dark, 
know that doubt is not the enemy of faith because God is present even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of darkest darkness. There is nowhere, nowhere, nowhere in the universe where God is not seen and present. God does not inhabit. God inhabits every part of it. Psalm 139 says it this way. I could, if I wanted to, try and ask darkness to hide me and the light all around me to become night. But the writer says, even in the darkness, I can't hide from God. To God, the night shines as bright as the day. Darkness and light are the same to God. God's kind and gentle. He can hold our deepest questions, our darkest emotions, our hardest questions and rage and anger, and those deep moments of struggle and darkness and pain and longing. I love what writer Madeline Langle says. Those who believe they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, those people believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. It is one element of faith. Unbelief, which we'll come to in a minute, can be antagonistic to faith, but doubt is not the enemy. The second thing that we need to embrace as we learn to walk in the dark is that doubters are also not the enemy. Those who have questions, those who wrestle. Some people, and there are those of you in this room who have lived some of these stories or whose families have lived these stories, have been banished and kicked out of churches and religious institutions simply for asking questions. For slowing down and saying, wait a minute, <laughs> I'm not 100% sure about that. <laughs> For not being with the program or getting on the script. Doubters sometimes get a bad reputation. Even one of Jesus' disciples has been labeled throughout history. His, it's stuck. Thomas, what do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Man, he had a couple of questions, and they were big ones, but now through a whole centuries, we've stuck the guy with doubting Thomas. It's helpful to know what kind of tone, though, Jesus took with Thomas in his interactions. Even in Thomas's questions and in Thomas's doubt, Jesus is gentle. Jesus is invitational. Jesus is open to interactions with Thomas. Doesn't say, hey, you didn't get with the rest of them in this upper room? You can't come around here anymore. You're done. In the book of Jude, Jude writes in his very brief letter about controversy. And he finishes it in Jude chapter 1, verse 22 with an instruction on, hey, if we're going to be in controversy, there's going to be doubts, questions. How are we going to live in this together? Jude chapter 1, 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. Be merciful to those who doubt. Being merciful is hard work because sometimes doubters ask questions at inopportune moments. Sometimes doubters shock you with their perspicacity or their boldness. And doubters come in all shapes, sizes, and backgrounds but let's be clear, doubters or people with questions are not the enemy. Let's also be clear that there is a type or a kind of doubt that is corrosive to faith. And I think that's where it's helpful to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Unbelief is the, a category beyond doubt that says, I absolutely and categorically choose to reject this. I think about this showing up in the Christmas story also. It shows up uh, in maybe an unexpected place. It shows up in the life of a priest, a professionally religious person, Zachariah. 
and Zacharias uh, and his wife Elizabeth have been unable to have children. And then an angel appears and says, you're going to have a child even in your old age. And Zachariah, this happens in, again, a worship context, in the temple. He's on duty. And, and the angel gives him a word. And Zachariah says, yeah, right. That's not going to happen. So for Zachariah, it's actually not doubt. It's unbelief that has settled into that area of his heart. And the angel says, you know what? I literally just came from standing at the right hand of the throne of God with a message for you. And you of all people, as a person who is supposed to be in this moment worshiping and acquainted with the character and the nature and the work of Almighty God, have the audacity to step beyond doubt and into unbelief? That's it. Shut up. (laughs) And he literally cannot speak until the baby is born. Because... There's a caustic element to his unbelief that goes beyond doubt. There's a line that you can cross where doubt begins to become corrosive and unhelpful. But even there, Jude one twenty two still applies. Be merciful. Be merciful to those who doubt. And so here's what we need to recognize in a place like this at Jericho. One of our core values that we plaster everywhere up on the banners is authentic community. And if we're going to have and live that value out, authentic community is going to invite us to get comfortable with those who are in dark places and who express that openly. Because they're just being authentic with where they are at. I, for one, do not want to be part of a religious community that creates no space for anyone with questions. Those exist. I sure hope that Jericho never becomes one of those. I want to become a part of a community that values and creates space for people to be authentic and bring their doubts and their questions and say, I don't know about this stuff. And this is a messy proposition. Authentic community is never clean cut. Because when we actually start to do that, people actually begin to tell you what they're thinking and how they're doing. And not all of us are down for that kind of level of authenticity. And there's appropriate places where that happens. But sometimes what can happen is religious communities that are sunshine and roses all the time and everything's great and all the songs are about every how everything is awesome and God's going to solve all of your problems and then you come into that situation with doubt and a question in your mind you feel like ooh I have to hide this cuz it doesn't look like anybody else has any of these questions they're going to think I'm crazy if I start asking those questions in her book Uh, Learning to Walk in the Dark, Episcopal priest and author Barbara Taylor Brown writes about the limitations of that kind of religious community. She calls that full solar spirituality, meaning it's like the sun is beating down on you all of the time. You're going to be optimistic. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. Happy, clappy stuff. Jesus, prosperity gospel kind of stuff. And she says, the human condition is such that like we should be able to recognize that full solar spirituality beating down sunshine and roses on us all the time is just completely unrealistic and inauthentic a refusal to acknowledge pain and loss that spins every tragedy or hardship into a quasi-magical and often very trite and tidy tale of well everything happens for a reason is full solar spirituality And she asks us to consider, why would we want that kind of faith experience? And maybe one of the answers to that question is, we might want our faith to mirror some of our values of suburban Western Christianity. That we want things to be up and to the right all the time. We want a real kind of safe, protected, clear-cut kind of spirituality. But when you stand with the global community of faith and you hear stories that we try to tell often from places like Liberia, where I was struck when Lindsay was saying that, at the start of this year, like last New Year's Day, 
when, you know, or last New Year's Eve, the two gentlemen in that picture were not Christians, and now they're leading a vibrant Christian community in that town. What a wonderful experience of God's grace. But when we open our hearts to the global community of faith, it is not sunshine and roses everywhere. They live with no illusions like we do. Our friends in Guatemala, or uh, when we work with Gain in Syria, you realize like full solar spirituality is a weird little blip in North American history and tradition that is not shared globally or historically as the way to a deep and vibrant and healthy spiritual faith. I mean, worship songs about happy, clappy psalms still sell a lot of albums, and there are lots of psalms of praise, but there are many psalms that express something quite different, and a lot of times we just sort of skip over them or we go to the places in them where it feels like it's turning the corner. Let me give you an example. Turn with your Bibles uh, or on your devices to Psalm chapter 42. This was our reading yesterday in the Project 345 plan. This is the start of uh, book two, which goes from Psalm 42 all the way to Psalm 72. So the book opens, like the second section, the second movement. You come back from intermission, the second movement of Psalms opens with verse four. My, uh, day and night, I have only tears for food, while my enemies continuously taunt me, saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking. I remember how it used to be. I used to walk among the crowds of worshipers. I was even leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy, giving thanks amidst the songs and the sounds of great celebration. Now, middle of verse 5, now I'm deeply discouraged. Verse 7, I hear the tumult of raging seas as your waves and your surging tides sweep over me. Oh God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts breaks my bones. They scoff, where is this God of yours? Yeah, not a lot of worship songs written out of Psalm 42, out of those texts. But see, this is written by and for people who are learning to walk in the dark. They're not skipping through their lives whistling Disney tunes all day. And this too is part of the journey of walking with God. I want you to know and hear and understand this is normal. Doubt is normal. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. Those who are in places where they're experiencing doubt, doubters are not the enemy. And thirdly, let me talk for just a minute to those of you who are not currently in a place of doubt, but you might be walking with those who are experiencing places that are dry and hard and dark. And let me say this kindly but clearly so we're all on the same page with this. Doubt and darkness are not fixed by casseroles and quick prayers. It would be nice if they were, but here's what I mean by that. Churchy people are good at mobilizing when there is a specific concrete need. Oh, someone's in the hospital, awesome. Go visit, bring a meal to their family as an expression of compassion and love. Oh, someone died in that person's family. Okay, let's make a meal, bring a casserole over. Then we can lighten the load of meal prep. There's one less thing to think about. But can we agree together that there ain't no casserole that's gonna fix it when your teenager looks you in the eye and says, I don't believe this Jesus stuff anymore. Or when your friend says to you, yeah, God has completely abandoned me. I am totally alone. I'm not sure God loves me anymore. Or I used to read the Bible, but I'm not finding it helpful right now. I'm, I don't, haven't picked it up in years. A casserole is not the appropriate mechanism to deploy in those situations. See, because churchy people are really good activists. And we're super awesome in the care and love 
department. We can spring into action and bring a casserole or say, say it and mean it like I'm praying for you. But there is a limitation to activism. Shocking as it sounds, there are just some things in life that a casserole or a quick prayer simply cannot fix. A few years ago, uh, when Meg and I were experiencing a season of particular darkness in our own journey, one of the gifts of grace that God gave us in that period was people who simply came alongside of us to listen. They would ask things like, what do you need right now? And I can remember not even having an answer to that very simple question. And they were okay with that. They simply opened up their homes. They opened up their lives. They didn't listen until simply the appropriate break in conversation where they could find the right scripture verse to pair it back to us about how God was working all things together for good. They didn't try and fix us. They simply said, our door is open, our life is open, we are here, this is hard, let's do this together. And that is an incredibly powerful ministry. There's a ministry of faithful presence, of, of simply moving alongside of someone and bearing witness to suffering and bearing witness to hardship, not trying to fix it, but simply bearing witness to it. That is not an easy ministry. It is hard work. And that's not to minimize the challenge of the one walking through the hardship or the loss. But when you put yourself right next to someone who's walking through that, in the language of Psalm 23, verse 4, the darkest valley that's shadowy and feels like you're dying, and you say to that person, I'm here, I love you, I do not fully understand or pretend to understand, but I will walk into the darkness with you. I will sit in the darkness with you. And that is a powerful ministry that reflects the heart of God. That's why in the book of Galatians chapter 6, Paul is writing to an incredibly persecuted group of people, some of whom have been dragged before um, and given their lives for their faith. And Paul says in Galatians 6 to what I want you to do in those incredibly challenging moments and circumstances when you do not know what to do is simply come alongside and share their burden. Share each other's burdens. And in this way, you are fulfilling or walking in obedience to the law of Christ. And sometimes burden sharing does look like casseroles and prayer. I'm not minimizing that. I'm simply saying sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it requires something else altogether. And if we're going to learn to walk in the dark with people, there's a few things that we need. Two virtues or attitudes that we'll need to put into practice. And the first one is humility. Because hope always requires humility. One of the first things that if we were to turn all the lights out in this building, and I thought maybe we should do it, and I thought, no, people freak out, and we'll try, and people going to and from the washroom might trip and fall and hurt themselves. But if you turn out and take away all of the sources of light in a room, one of the first things that happens is you lose your ability to see your way forward with confidence. If there's light, you're like, okay, I'm going to walk this way, I'm going to head toward that door. But suddenly, if all of the light disappears, you're like, I'm not sure I'm anywhere close to the door. Am I far from it? Where are the stairs? Poor Constance was in here and wasn't well lit this week, and she fell and twisted her ankle. When, when darkness disappears and when the lights go out, everything's, when you're, it's completely illuminated, you don't need humility. You just kind of walk fully confident into whatever. But when you're walking in the dark you start to stumble over stuff. You need to slow your pace down so that you're careful. And this is actually one of the gifts that darkness gives us if we choose to embrace it, the gift of humility. 
the gift of acknowledging that you and I do not have all of the answers. See, when the goal of faith is certitude about everything all of the time, and something breaks into your world that you can't fit into your pre-existing theological box, you can choose to double down, build the sandcastle wall higher to prevent being unnerved by this, or you can learn to utter what I consider to be a deeply holy and spiritual phrase. I don't know. See, some of us have been taught that those are bad words that you should never say. But that leads us sometimes into places where in any conversation, what we think we need to provide is answers, and sometimes answers to questions that people are not asking. And we need to lead with prescriptive answers. But prescriptive answers often shut down honest questions. And honest questions are a part of faith. Again, in his book, Faith and Doubt, John Ortberg says, honest doubt is like the devil's advocate that honest faith requires. So there's unbelief, but there's also honest doubt. Just an honesty of saying, I don't know. I'm not sure. So maybe for you, that's a practice that you might want to try and put in place. You'll get together maybe in this next month with family and friends, and it might be a time or a season where you lead with your heart and not with your head. Maybe the Christmas table, dinner table, is not the best place for an apologetics discussion on the veracity of the virgin birth. It might be, I don't know your family. But maybe you could create some space for mystery and uncertainty this Christmas season. It's hard work, but it's also most definitely a rich and rewarding experience. Some of us need to, as painful as it is, let go of the idol of certainty and instead seek a deeper and richer commitment to Christ right in the midst of uncertainty. And if so, you might actually find that your doubts save your faith. I like to keep around me uh, objects that remind me of lessons that I've learned along the way. And so if you come into my new office on one of my shelves, you will see uh, what might be a curious object. It's a, an empty 2006 bottle of, uh, uh, of wine of Nuit Saint-Georges specifically. And those of you who know me know that I'm a student of wine, uh, the study of which is called enology. And I love enology for the same reason that I love theology. And that is the more I learn, the more real I realize there is to learn. And the more I realize I will never learn it all. And so uh, enology reminds me of really how little I know. <laughs> and so I put this uh, on my shelf for a very specific reason. Particularly this bottle reminds me of that because uh, in the last course that I took, which was a level two uh, course, there was a whole section. The last 25% of this test was about a wine I had never heard of, had no access to, and you had to answer a quarter of the test about this wine. And I thought, boy, oh boy, I have never heard of this before. I am really walking in the dark on this one. Turns out that wine was a Nuit St. George. Now, I passed the test, but I vowed that if I ever saw a Nuit St. George wine anywhere in the world, I would buy it. So we came out, tried to call around. Hey, have you got any Nuit St. George? People are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, and I said, I just took this test on this wine, you know, it was, uh, and they said, I, don't, I can't get it for you, sorry. Uh, called a, a few other places, never heard of it, don't know what you're talking about. Um, so I said, all right, anywhere in the world, if we find this wine, we have, to, we have to find and buy this wine. So searched high and low, couldn't find it. One day, sitting down for dinner at a hotel restaurant in Tanzania, <laughs> I happened to glance at the wine list. And sure enough, 
there's a Nuit St. George hiding in Tanzania. So we bought it and we drank it. And I thought, I am bringing this bottle home to put it on my shelf to remind me of the fact that I do not know everything. I cannot remember if this was a great wine when we drank it. I just know we found it and it reminds me I don't have all the answers. So I put it on my shelf and every now and then I look at it. And it just is like my little reminder, my little signal, hey Brad, you do not know it all. What reminds you in your life that you don't have all the answers? Maybe it's your kids or students. Maybe there's some experience that you had that cracked that open for you where you just began to say, I do not know how God works in the world in all the ways. And you know, if we start to look in the scriptures, you see this again and again in Jeremiah chapter 33. Call to me and I will answer you. Sometimes that verse gets hyped a lot around prayer. What is God going to answer you with? I'm going to tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Or Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, right in the pages of Scripture, God says, there's stuff you're never going to figure out. That's my department. I'm going to keep that. Right in the Bible, God says, you're not going to know everything there is to know. Get comfortable with mystery, and learning to embrace mystery takes humility. The ability to say, I don't know. There's another thing that's required if we're learning to walk in the dark, and that is courage. Hope requires humility, but hope also requires courage because it takes courage to walk in the dark and keep moving forward. It takes courage to ask questions about things that you used to be 100% certain about. Hope requires a kind of boldness, a kind of... of curiosity and sometimes we talk about and think about how courage is like some kind of a blind leap of faith into the dark but sometimes courage is just a small step into a hospital room to visit a friend undergoing treatment when you don't like all the smells and the beeps of the intrusive equipment and you would prefer not to be there sometimes courage is texting a friend and saying how are you doing knowing that they're likely not going to say fine and knowing that that means you're going to need to get in your car and drive over there and sit with them. What could you do today to grow your courage? Meg wrote another beautiful liturgy for Advent, for the second week of Advent. We posted it on our website. It's on the front page. There's also some print copies. And she walks us through an imaginative prayer exercise one thing that can help you grow in courage is simply getting off the beaten path a little bit. And sometimes spiritual practices are a way of doing that because they force us to have conversations that we may not want to have or they put us in postures that would be healthy and helpful for us. So a spiritual practice maybe for you that might stretch you might be fasting from food or technology, especially in a season of excess like this month is. Or maybe for you, it's radical generosity. And sometimes we talk about that in terms of finances. But sometimes uh, it can be more challenging to actually give yourself and give of your time. Because time feels sometimes even more finite and precious than financial resources. So maybe for you, stretching yourself and an act of courage would be to say, you know what, I'm going to give up that white space on my calendar and I'm going to volunteer and do bell ringing with the Salvation Army or I'm going to host my neighbors in for an appy night and it doesn't have to be all fancy and decorated up to the nines. Maybe you practice just a little bit more of a radical spirit of generosity. Or maybe for you, uh, you do some reading a little bit outside of your comfort zone. Maybe it would be a challenge for you to dig into some books this season. And there's three that uh, I brought that I would recommend, and uh, I'll leave them up here, and you can come and, and uh, browse them and have a look through. One I talked about last week called God Over Good, Saving Your Faith by Losing Your Expectations of God by Luke Norsworthy. Uh, another book uh, by a theologian and pastor Greg Boyd called Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idol of Certainty. It's a little bit more dense, but it's worth the tougher slogging. And then a beautiful book uh, by Barbara Taylor Brown called Learning to Walk 
in the dark. Those are just three. And then John Ortberg's book, uh, Faith and Doubt, is a good resource as well. But Jared and Ruth Ellen and the team are going to come and lead us in songs of reflection and response. And we don't have like a big, long tradition of special music uh, at Jericho, but they're going to sing a song for the first song of this set that falls a little bit more into that category, and it's a song actually about doubt. And the words are going to be up on the screen, and you're very welcome to sing along, but you also don't feel like you have to sing along. What we wanted to do in this moment was just create a little bit of space and time for you to reflect on things that you've heard without feeling a need to always spring into action and get your mouth moving because there's words up on the screen. And while earlier I said that um, quick prayers and good casseroles don't fix everything, I do want to reiterate that we do value prayer here at Jericho because we believe that God is present in power and attending to the voices of God's people when we join together and pray. And that's why every weekend when we gather, we allow space for our teams at the back uh, and trusted people to be there who can pray with you. And you can go and ask them to pray with you. They'll have a name tag on so you can identify them. And maybe you have a burden. Uh, maybe you have uh, something that you want to celebrate. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what, I want to actually embrace that kind of faith, Brad, that you're describing. I've been wrestling with doubts, and I thought for all of this time that I had to get all those doubts checked off my list before I ever said, okay, I'm in on this whole Jesus thing. And maybe today you've realized, you know what, I can come just as I am with my questions, with my thoughts, with my wrestlings, and yet I can still say, Jesus, I'm coming to you. Lord, I believe, I want to believe. Help my areas of unbelief. We would love to process that with you and pray with you today. Maybe you are walking through a time that's dark and deep and you want someone to stand with you. We would love to do that as well. Novelist L. E. L. Doctoro talks about the difficulty and painful and bumpy and sometimes dark process of being a writer. But in a podcast I was listening to yesterday, uh, author Suzanne Stabile made the point that this description is actually also really helpful about the spiritual life and about our doubts and our questions. She said this, the spiritual life is like driving down a dark road at night. We wish it would be lit and illuminated so we could see the end of our journey. But all we can see is as far as the headlights. But you know what? You can actually make the whole journey that way. Now 
so, Jesus, come and make all things new. Come and make yourself known to us in our darkness. Remind us of your love. And may we go into your world this week and encounter people that we know and remind them that they are loved and that their doubts and their questions and their anger and their fear does not disqualify them from God's embrace and God's promises. And so we go empowered by the Spirit in the name of the Father and by the gracious provision of Jesus the Son in God's grace and in God's peace to bring hope.